Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. Do you guys feel like you've learned how to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Okay, but that, I mean, yes. Yes, but that's not really what I meant. Like, how how has this experience affected your reading life? Oh, that's a big question. I know. That is actually, I see what you mean. I thought you were being silly and opening patter, but now I'm taking you seriously. Well, I, I do mean to be taken seriously. Yes, I'm opening with a question because look, we're starting part four. We're starting part four of volume four, which is the the final part before an epilogue that may as well have been called a part. And who, what is anyway, Tolstoy is, is going to keep going, but we're entering the final part of this book. And I think it might be worthwhile to reflect a little bit on how this project has impacted our reading lives. That's good. I like that. I'm oh, glad it meets with your approval. A, now answer I, it. <laughs> I have an opening salvo thought on that. For me, it has helped me be patient, which I think is one of the main virtues of reading in general, but it's helped me be patient with the process and not race to get to the end, you know? And I've noticed myself uh, having an increasing patience in other reading experiences because we've been working on this one for so long and I found it so rewarding to be sitting in the same author's work for such an extended period of time. It's quite a different mindset from when you're a kid reading an adventure story and you're reading purely for plot and the faster the better, you know? It, it's, I don't know, it's lingering over details and is teaching me to appreciate each author's voice even beyond Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like that too. I would I would second that. I would also add that I tend to be a reader who makes a lot of assumptions while I'm reading that I know what's what the author is doing at a certain point and etc. Oh yeah. And this section in particular kind of brought back to mind the fact that you don't really know what an author said until he's done saying it and Tolstoy hasn't finished saying it yet. And yeah, as, in, so, as incomprehensible as that yeah. may seem. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's funny, but like, I'm, I'm serious. Like, we've asked a lot of questions of him and we've been frustrated. And I think it's good to sit in that frustration, actually, because he wants you to actually wrestle through those questions and he's going to come back around to it. I feel like he came back around in this section to a lot of things that we've asked. Um, but but the sitting and the not knowing is is good and the longer that you do that like we've been forced to do the more the more the answer or the potential solution is impactful right oh, i like it what did you have both good answers to that question how would you answer that question ian i don't want to have to answer oh. that question I, well <laughs> i don't have much new to add to those two things i think those are both those are both great i don't know i'm still well, let's dive into the discussion because my answer will be about this section. I'm still annoyed with Tolstoy because, I mean, for heaven's sake, dude, we start part four and I think, oh, characters, here we go. We're going to do it's It's time. We're going to get back to the story at long last. And he gives us three chapters 
of meditations on our characters before going, I can't help myself. <laughs> and diving right back into the history with, with some more about Kutuzov. Now, it's not that it's the only thing he's he's ever said before. Again, he, he personalizes it, and it becomes even more clear that what he's doing is personally defending the man, Kutuzov, and, and, and articulating personal hatred for Napoleon. And I, I get it, but I would love to, if I ever get to meet Leo, I would love to sit down with him and say, hey, man, was it like an inexorable drawing of the spirit? Towards the this question, stone of historical philosophy. Was it the lodestone <laughs> of your heart and mind? Like, why did we write? Why did we include anything about Natasha to begin with? Because well, clearly, actually, you didn't want to write about her. I thought this section actually it made me pause because I saw a lot of connections between the two stories that he tells in these five chapters. That a lot of the meditations that he makes between Natasha and Maria apply to Kituzov hmm. and actually it, it it makes me think that there's more going on in the historical sections I mean it's not that we didn't know that or, or of course not that it's also not that I disagree about. with that right but it, it does it for like emotionally this time I felt a little bit more in tune with what he was trying to do yeah I agree with that I think that's what I mean when I say he personalizes it a little bit he drew the drew the historical issue down out of the clouds into the real world and and it was more palatable this time. I, my, my comment was mostly intended to say, on the face of it, I get done with three chapters of just soul-quenching, soul perfect meditations on our real flesh-and-blood characters that we love. And then he mentions Katuzov, and I go, <laughs> like that, you know? I do, yeah. But man, those sections on the characters at the beginning are fantastic. Our long-awaited scenes with Natasha were, in my opinion, worth the wait, she has sunk deep into, well, it looks like depression after the death of Andre, but has found all kinds of relationship with Maria as a result. I loved watching her be pulled out of that depression by the knowledge of Petya's death. I felt like we as readers already have mourned him and moved along. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So there was a peculiar distance between me and Natasha as that scene went down, as she realized what had happened. And I think that it was accurate to what Tolstoy has been trying to tell us about Natasha's grief. What did you guys think about that? Did you feel distant from Natasha as she processed that revelation as well? No, I, I hadn't thought about that. I thought it was a really beautiful passage, but that does seem to be what he's doing here. He's he's drawing together distances, and I'd love to dive into that. Um, before we move on, though, I kind of had a question about the transition between the end of part three and the beginning of part four. We're told the last thing that we read in part three is that the Russian army had to act like a whip on a running animal. And so the French are compared to an animal that is uh, being chased out of Russia. And right. then part four opens and there's a, a little meditation here about a dying animal and a man's response to it. And then that is compared to a, a man watching a man die. And we get the this idea of a wound that either kills you or, or heals. And it seems like Andre is being compared to the dying animal. And that was the last 
metaphor that Tolstoy used at the end of part three, but it had to do with the French. I think to go you one better, I think that that image of the wound comes up again and again over the course of our five chapter section and is most poignantly used to describe Natasha and her mother processing grief together. That the countess, her wound will never heal and she will slowly die as a result of her son passing away before his time. But Natasha is healing. So that wounded animal kind of comes to represent all mankind in suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Tolstoy has used that before to describe the French as they're, they're slowly dying on their way out, which is why Kutuzov doesn't have to do anything about them. They're, they're kind of just ending their lives on their own. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't seen that connection. I Yeah, I'm going to have to chew on that. It seems like the transition from dying animal to physical wound or soul wound is so fast that the, the connection may be incidental. But the wound itself, though, is really interesting to me because Natasha and Princess Maria feel it equally despite the fact of their very different relationships to Andre. Did you guys notice that? Uh, keep explaining. I think I know what you mean, but I know what they learned from one another in the process, which seems to be more of a bonding than a, than a separation. Right. Agreed. Uh, but I, I don't want to go quite that far just yet. It's right here on this opening page. There's a, he tries to describe their experience of grief at losing Andre using the same thing. And that thing is... I would, I would call it a fascination, right? There's a fixation in their soul, and he describes that as a wound, but it's a fixation in their soul on, on what has happened, on the strangeness, the otherness, the alien quality of losing someone beloved and the fact that they are annihilated entirely. And he says, these two feel this equally and in the same, in the same way, which I thought was really intriguing. I mean, Natasha obviously is in, is in love with Andre and has been, for a long time, but it wasn't a, a, a consummated love. They were not married or anything along those lines. And so it would seem like there would be a, a distinction of some kind in the quality of their sorrow at losing this man. But Tulsa doesn't seem to think so. I actually thought, I thought this was really beautiful. And I wonder if it has more to do with the fact that they would have been sisters had it actually you know, had she actually been able to marry Andre and that sisterly relationship is consummated of a sort in this section. And it seems by the, to me... Almost by the shared sorrow, right? Well, yes. And that is what he goes to meditate on at length. And it does a lot for me to answer or to, to mollify some of the questions I had about Andre's death and how we were unsatisfied with kind of his distancing from the world and here in this section, things are drawn together, not distanced. Um, Pierre, too, has uh, distanced himself from other people. And Natasha and Maria do that. They don't talk to anyone. Um, and they only spend time together. And even when they're together, they don't talk about Andre. But uh, they're, they're drawn together in the sorrow. It's the suffering that they've both equally experienced. It's the same suffering. And it brings them together instead of distancing them. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking for some way for togetherness to be the point. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think this 
this passage was satisfying for that reason. Absolutely. Megan, what about you? Oh, sorry, Emily, I cut you off. Well, I just keep circling distance as an idea because I think that on the one hand, our characters here in, in the land of the living are getting closer as a result of suffering. But Ian is right too, that they are becoming closer because of their fixation with the other, with the the vast distance, the incomprehensible mystery of that other place, which Tolstoy is careful to describe as as real as this place. We can't go there yet. We don't know about it. And yet it does exist. And Andre is being a person there now. And Natasha is looking forward and asking questions like, where is he? Who is he now? She's She's concerned with the distance that's impenetrable, but his existence is still still affirmed, which I thought was fascinating and maybe part of the conversation that he's trying to have here. What gives us relationship here? And what is that question that she's asking about the future as well? She says, he says on the next page past where you guys were looking, it seemed to her that she was just on the point of understanding, of penetrating that terrible, overwhelming question at which her inner gaze was directed. Skip a paragraph she was looking there where he had gone to the other side of life and that side of life of which she had never thought before, which before had seemed so far off and unbelievable was now closer and dearer, more comprehensible to her than this side of life where everything was either emptiness and ruin or suffering and offense. It seems like the thematic idea that he's circling is about, uh, life and separation and distance and if life ends. Yeah. I go, go ahead, Emily. I saw a parallel between the shared sorrow that Maria and Natasha have kind of being magnets, drawing them together and Natasha's love for Andre being a magnet that draws her on into that other life that it's, it's the particular love and, and understanding between two individuals that bring them together and in space. So in the present, that's Maria and Natasha. But mm-hmm. there's something about the shared experience that Natasha had with Andre that is bridging the gap between the beyond and the now. And it's the same thing. Right. And I think Tolstoy actually goes so far as to tell us what it is in this passage, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Go ahead. What is it? Yeah. Well, he, I'm trying to find the little passage. Um, it's, it's in chapter three, so it does skip a chapter and please feel free to take us back again. But Natasha, when she realizes that, that Petya is, has died and she's kind of called back into the present moment for the sake of her family, Tolstoy describes it like this. This was the way Natasha's wound healed. She thought her life was over, but suddenly her love for her mother showed her that the essence of life, love, was still alive in her. Love awoke and life awoke. And taken back to the beginning of our section for today, it does seem like Emily is right. It's relationship, it's love between two people, which particularizes your moment and draws you together. But if you love someone who's passed on, you're also drawn inextricably to consider what comes next. And the life, he even says uh, at the beginning of our section that the life is, it's the other side of life. It's not death. It's not the beyond. It's not another existence. It's the other side of life, a continuation, but a divide between you, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that has made me uncomfortable, and I've, I have, have talked about it at length in previous episodes, Tolstoy is sometimes unbearably, painfully frank about his character's immaturities, fixations, uh, mental tics, right? And he's given us um, a beautiful, stirring, well-rounded picture of Natasha's personality over the course of the story. And she's an adult now in a way that she wasn't before, especially having encountered sorrow. But there are still little elements of the drama queen that we met in the beginning of the story. And I think one of the things he's trying to say here is that it's impossible. He says at one point, um, perfect sorrow is as impossible as pure and perfect joy, right? It's you actually can't live through something like this, um, that encounter with the other side of life. You can't live through it perfectly. And it's interesting to me that love for the living calls life out of you. And love for the dead has a lot in common with self-love. The way that he describes both Maria and Natasha in the beginning of the passage is, and I don't think he's doing it in a cruel way or a critical way. I think he's just very matter of fact about what it's like to encounter this. The questions that you have after encountering the other side of life have to do with yourself. And it's sweet, even if it's sorrowful. Yes, I think I because see what I you think mean. it's 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 um, the same way that self pity is. Sweet. What's the word I'm looking for? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which is something we've seen Natasha encounter before, and something she's particularly given to in her personality. And so, on the one hand, she's it's 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 noble, and we all identify with with grief. And there's no way to hustle it along, and you can't do it right, and there is no doing it right. And on the other hand, I think Tolstoy is, as usual, relentless in his interest in showing us both the good and the and the um, bad sides of our characters and the way that Natasha and Maria handle Andre's death is that they get stuck in it like a rut until real life happens to them some more right until the demands of Maria's responsibilities pull her out of her rut and then afterwards yeah. What's what is our young what is our young dead son's name? Petya. Petya. Petya, thank you. <laughs> Afterwards, Petya's death <laughs> pulls Natasha out of hers. And and that's good is what he's is what he's saying, right? Even though it would have been incomprehensible to Natasha, and it is, right? In, in comes the servant with news of Petya's death. And she says, What could possibly be sorrowful for any of you? What could possibly be sorrowful? In that moment, it makes perfect sense to her that hers is the only grief, the largest grief. That's how it feels to all of us when we're encountering grief. But as soon as it becomes real that there is something outside of it, she begins to forget, and that forgetting is good. But I, I want to be careful not to draw a moral, which is don't get stuck in your grief, because I think that she actually needed that time, that time of no words, in order to be prepared for what comes after. I mean, it's obviously significant that the mother wants her particularly right. because she instinctively knows that it's Natasha that's going to be able to to be there and understand her instinctively. Agreed. I didn't intend to draw a moral at all. No, I, mean, I know I know that yeah you didn't. I just want to be careful because what comes after this section is the description of Katuzov, who it, we're told was particularly good at his job because he didn't use words to to characterize this inner sense that he had. And that's the same thing that happens here between Maria and Natasha. They don't, they sit in that moment, they contemplate the beyond without words because they don't feel like they can articulate it, that that would diminish it in some way. And that draws them 
or builds them up in this life that's eventually called out of them by the real world. Yeah, I think you're right. I think these two things are, are constantly in tension for, to- and this is, this is what I'm trying to say about his whole style is, Hey man, I'm going to give you the full sweep. I'm going to give you a completely real character. And so as much as this sorrow is, he says on, on uh let's see, which chapter is it? Anyways, he says the phrase, it was necessary for her, right? It was necessary for her. She has to do this. There's no way Page out of 1076 it. for those of you following along. Thank you. It was, yeah, this, this sorrow, this grief is absolutely necessary for her. But then he also says that she's getting ill. She's losing weight, right? She's, she's getting ready to go join Andre on the other side of the divide. Like we can't, I don't think we can be human beings in Tolstoy's estimation without giving ourselves, ourselves fully and immoderately to everything that's happening to us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. I do know what you mean. And I also think that you're right, Ian. I hadn't thought about it before that her response is a natural. He's not creating a moral tale saying, don't do it like no, this. No, I don't, I don't think he's slapping her hand about it at all. No, but also B it's, it's selfish. It's self-focused. She's, she's dying in a way. And so she's considering only herself and her suffering. And it takes, it takes the breaking in of someone else's suffering to call her out of herself for princess Maria. It's considering Nikolushka or whatever his name is. Andre's son. Actually, I think you nailed it. Thank you. Realizing that, (laughs) that he might be suffering as well. And she's his primary caretaker and she has to go and, and consider his needs. It takes her out of herself. Natasha, it's her mother specifically calling out to her and saying, no one will understand this, but you, the line goes, she instantly forgot herself and her grief. So just like that, it's the thing that pulls her out of herself to go and share someone else's suffering. And she feels that suffering so keenly uh, that she wants to shift it onto herself because she knows it's crushing her mother. And that's the way that it's described. So Emily, I think you're right that all of her experience prepared her for the moment with her mother. And it's not something that we should shake our finger at and say, no, don't do it like Mm -hmm. Natasha. No, no, it's just descriptive, right. not prescriptive. Mm-hmm. And, Which is the way and Tolstoy one of the always is. That he has been, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Ad nauseum, descriptive, descriptive. And, and he's also been on about providence in the background, at least. I mean, sometimes explicitly, but always in the background. He's on about providence. And part of me feels like this little chapter is his nod at an explanation for why death happens. He basically says, hey, I can't explain this to you all the way to the bottom, but we need it. Look what it does. Right. Look, look how it creates and deepens relationships. Look how it um, it pulls you out of scenarios that you're powerless in. By putting you in other scenarios that you're equally powerless in. Right. That, um, it's about providence, I think. I think so. And with that musing tone, it's like, huh, look how human beings deal with this. He says of, of the countess, she tried whatever means she could to save herself from reality in a world of insanity. That, that gave me more compassion for Natasha looking a few chapters back. You do whatever you can to try and maintain your, your bearings in a world that's being rocked by something you've never experienced before. What did you guys think of his little meditation on memory where that's concerned? Because Natasha sits on her couch and she imagines herself speaking to Andre and yeah. she imagines the conversation and thinks, no, no, that was that was horrible. And so she relives that moment and rewrites it. Mm-hmm. 
And then at the end of chapter two, we see her mother doing the same thing. She says, I'm so glad you've come. You're, you're tired. Would you like some tea? And Natasha goes to her and her mother says, you've grown handsome and manly. So she's not talking to Natasha. She's doing the same thing. She's talking to Petya. So they're, they're going back to the past to, to rewrite yeah. something as a means of, of therapy of some kind. Well, and there's, there's another part. I can't find it. I just, I can't find it right this minute, but there's another part where he talks about Maria and Natasha's um, collective remembering of Andre and that as they try and hold on to him, they're forgetting mm-hmm. because the, the version of him that they are trying to imprint and remind themselves of and call to mind all of the time isn't a full version, can't be a full version. And so they're forgetting the full him, the real him is being forgotten. He seems to say, this is natural, folks. This is how this is how it works. This is how the, the body grows and heals itself. The soul grows and heals itself. It copes, right? And I think we think about coping in a negative way. Maybe this is a feature of the modern world in some sense. But I, I think about coping in a negative way. Oh, you're just getting along to get along. Tolstoy seems to say, no, this has all been created to run just like this. There are going to be tender shoots of new grass in the silt covering your soul. And and it's inexorable. And, and hopeful. I think that's, that's a, really beautiful. That's a spring yeah. image. I actually wanted yeah. to read that little paragraph because of the beautiful description. If all of this is a backdrop, here's the way Natasha has processed. Here's the way the Countess is processing. This is what grief does to you. It makes you selfish. It makes you insane. Uh, there are a lot of things to prescriptively... Don't do this, you know, but here is the image that he gives you of her coming out of it. She didn't know it. She would not have believed it. But under the seemingly impenetrable layer of silt that covered her soul, thin, tender, young needles of grass were already breaking through, which were to take root and so cover with their living shoots the grief that oppressed her, that it would soon not be seen or noticed. The wound was healing from inside. I love that it's not that they will eliminate the grief. It will always be kind of the soil now, but, but good things are going to grow out of it and it will be fresh and new. So she's got a depth to her, quite literally. I mean, if you think about it as soil, she's got a depth now and a richness that she didn't have before, but there's a hope in it. I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great image. I think the imagination is... I think he's painting it as a good thing in this process that she's able to, to go back and imagine what she would have said. And if, if the great beyond is as real as he seems to, to paint it as then she's not necessarily limited by time in that. I mean, there's been several times in this book where imagination has been more real than, than reality itself. So There might be something kind of mystical in that. This conversation that we're having about the prescriptive versus the descriptive in Tolstoy, I thought it was really stark in the contrast between Maria and Natasha, because in their relationship together, they've both been extremes up to this point in the novel. Natasha is is the vivacity of life, right? She is vivaciousness personified. And Maria... I mean, in Ian's worst moments, Maria is didacticism, you know, like she is the didactic character and is driven Ian crazy in the past. Do I overstep? Absolutely. You do not. Great. Well, in this passage, it seems to me that Tolstoy is bringing those two together as if to say they actually 
have things to contribute to one another's half view of the world. It's all of it together. Notice how life is many faceted, just like he's doing in the philosophical realm in those multiplicity of causes in the history chapters. He's doing it here in their friendship and saying what Natasha learns from Maria is self-denial and submission, a, a thought for a world beyond her own that she's never had the time to consider before. And that's really growing for her. But Princess Maria, in her turn, turns to Natasha and says, oh, wow, life is so beautiful and it's so, so worthy to turn your eyes from heaven to the person next to you who's broken and messy and enjoy relating to them. Um, I loved the way that their, their little sister chapter, chapter three, begins. The conversation begins with Natasha turning to Maria and saying such a weird thing. She says, Masha, you don't think I'm bad do you? No. Masha, darling, how I love you. Let's be best, best friends. I loved that strange little question at the beginning. You don't think I'm bad, do you? It's the moral question, right? The way that I am behaving. Do you judge me? Are you, do you feel yourself superior to me? And I think up to this point in the novel, Maria might feel superior to most people in the novel. She's, she keeps herself apart. She's very, very holy. It's, dri it's, it's driven us crazy, right? But I love that Natasha calls that out and then names for us. No, she doesn't. She doesn't think that, that Natasha is bad and in fact needs what Natasha has to offer. Let's be best, best friends. What do you guys think about that? That's great. I couldn't, I could possibly, I couldn't possibly add to that analysis. That was fulsome and beautiful. Emily. Yeah, I think that was great. And even when they notice the differences about each other, um, and Natasha notices that she understood, you know, sub devotion, submission, uh, the poetry of Christian self-denial. Uh, but it says she did not think of applying submission and self-denial to her own life because mm. she was used to seeking other joys. Yeah. But she understood and came to love this formerly incomprehensible virtue love in another. And, and it goes the other way around. Mm -hmm. So the seeing the full view of life doesn't mean that you have to... Be all things. Right. It doesn't change yeah. your character. Right. It's because, you, because who you are is a gift. Tolstoy is so clear about that. These things are gifts, even the ones that cause us pain, even the ones that put us in bad situations, even the ones that, in Pierre's case, cause us to be progressless fools, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? Who just spin our wheels constantly, no matter what the situation is. All of these things are gifts. And mm -hmm. you can't change your stars. Nothing you do about it. Providence is actually the agent here. And so what you do is open your eyes to the reality of yourself and your neighbor and wonder at all of it. I think you it's give beautiful. the gift of yourself freely to your neighbor, assuming yeah. that he has a gift to give you too. Yeah. It's yeah, really, exactly. really beautiful. Okay, so I hate to do this to you, but we do need to discuss the last two chapters of our section, which I already mentioned, the ones about Kutuzov, where he puts a fine point on his historical argument. And I we said that this is a little bit more personal. It's more focused on Kutuzov himself. But how do you think it relates to the conversation going on here? I, I have a couple of thoughts about that myself, but I want to hear from you guys first. Well, there was a line that really stuck out to me in particular that goes like this. Such is the destiny, not of great men, not of the grand homme whom the Russian mind does not recognize, but of those rare, always solitary men who, discerning the will of providence, submit their personal will to it. The hatred and contempt of the crowd punish these men for their insight into the higher law. 
I thought that that might be why he's circling this concept again. That idea right there, he's trying to distill his idea of the great man that he's been so loudly saying doesn't exist and renaming it. He says, there is a great man, actually. I take it back. And he would look like this. This is a great man in my mind. Mm-hmm. Chapter five ends, or our reading for today ends, for a lackey, there can be no great man because a lackey has his own idea of greatness. The implication being exactly what you said, that the vision of a great man, man that these people have is wrong. There is a great man. There is an idea of greatness. It just, it looks like this. It doesn't look like Napoleon. Well, yeah. I mean, it, I I swear to all of you listeners, I am a generally positive, upbeat person <laughs> who likes to think the best of people and has a huge problem with criticism defined as criticalness. I agree. I agree with that and about you. And yet, here we are in Tolstoy, and it really looks to me like he's he's doubling back on himself, like some kind of, of logical snake, <laughs> right? Like, Oh, I think that's, I mean... It's a paradox that he's trying to create, right? That he, he's exploring a grand idea by by negating it. Can you name the paradox for us? Well, so it just so happens that I've been reading Hegel, and I don't mean to pull that as like a <laughs> nice. flex. What a flex. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It was. I'm really, really bad at it. I'm just in a philosophy class right now. And it's so interesting how... The two are in conversation with each other. Tolstoy and Hegel? Well, I do think that Tolstoy, I mean, particularly in this section, I was just taken aback by how much like Hegel he sounds, but how much he clearly was writing against Hegel's ideas. Hegel said there are great men. He mentions Napoleon by name as a great man who was in tune with the spirit of the times. Tolstoy says, a a rare solitary man who, discerning the will of providence, submits their personal will to it. Well, that's exactly what Hegel is trying to say, that there's a spirit, there's a a zeitgeist of the times, and certain men rise up and they they push everyone forward into this newer, greater, um, reasonable, right? For Hegel, it was reason. That everyone, this idea of reason, everyone is being drawn towards it and we're perfecting slowly. The universe is progressing towards this idea of reason. And Tolstoy is turning that on its head. He's saying, he seems to be saying the exact same thing in some ways, that there are great men. There is a will of providence that's pulling us along and perfecting us. But first of all, it's not reasonable. Mm-hmm. He's been very clear that we can't comprehend it with our minds. Right. Um, it has more to do with the heart, it seems, right? Kutuzov's passion. Well, specifically with the Russian heart, but I'll let you have that one. And the great man is actually the little man, the humble man. Except if he's a lackey with his own idea of greatness, right? Well, I was confused about that, that as well, that actually. That was confusing Because to me. isn't a lackey, just to define terms here, isn't a lackey someone who does the will of someone else? Yes. So he's saying a lackey doesn't consider his own greatness. He just does the will of his superior. And in so doing, in that act of submission, becomes great. Is that right? Uh, Emily, help us with this line because I, I read the opposite of that. Oh. I read the, the word lackey as referring to anyone who believes Napoleon is a great man. Yes. Oh, okay. That's, what, that's how I took it as well. I'm I think sure you're saying. Right. The the truly great man, which, by the way, isn't, it could be any of us. But it is Kutuzov, though. Right, right. Because Kutuzov isn't putting himself in the service of what everyone else thinks is the correct spirit of the time. 
He instead is acting regardless of other people's opinions, that he is with his heart in tune with the real the real spirit of the time. And he's not he's not a bond slave to reputation or to public opinion. I think that's the lackey. The lackey is a a slave to public opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I love your I love that point. I think it's fantastic. I wouldn't be shocked at all if Tolstoy and Hegel were in direct competition with one another. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um all that I was trying to say really at the beginning here was that Tolstoy has been on and on about how there's no such thing as a great man. And it turns out that what he was building up to, the climax of his assertion was, there is two. It just happens to be one who looks like a Russian and talks like a Russian and walks around like a Russian. Because the way he defines Kutuzov here at the very end is, the source of this of Kutuzov's extraordinary power of penetration into the meaning of events taking place lay in that national feeling, which he bore within himself and all its purity and force. That's a very Hegelian idea, too, actually, that history moves forward by by national spirits. Yeah. Ian, you're right. It gets worse. A little further down, he says, they, they chose him as representative of the national war, and only that feeling placed him on the loftiest human height, from which he, from which the, he commander in chief, the commander in chief, directed all his powers, not at killing and destroying people, but at sparing and pitying them. That's the most important line. Not killing and destroying people, but sparing and pitying them. I, I don't disagree with Tolstoy that Kutuzov is a great man at all. And I think I think that the person that he paints for us is absolutely wonderful and represents the best of mankind. He loves Russia and he, he's defending his own people. But if one's nationalistic attitude outward facing is one of sparing and pitying, not killing and destroying, then that's a feeling of brotherhood, which Tolstoy was absolutely on about the feeling of brotherhood. He thought that was the spirit of the times. That's what he says in what is art. And so, I mean, it's simultaneous, right? He's proud of his own nation, but he doesn't think that's of cause to he doesn't think that's a cause to cross the border into France and beat the French down and conquer the world, right? Right, of course. Could it be, I'm just thinking about this, that his final, the nail in the coffin of his argument here about the great man comes down to that second to last paragraph of chapter, I guess it's chapter three. This simple, modest, and therefore truly majestic figure could not fit into that false form of the European hero, the imaginary ruler of the people which history has invented. Could it be that he's arguing because of those virtues that you just pointed out, Emily, the virtues of sparing human life and pitying your brother and brotherhood, that that is the real quality of a hero and all these other things that have distracted us looking back at history and putting Napoleon on a pedestal are imaginary, imaginary trappings. Yep, I think that's what he's trying to say. I see what you mean then. Yeah. I mean... Tolstoy gets me every time. I get mad at him and I think his phrasing is annoying and I think there is a nationalistic spirit in there. I think he goes on too long. I mean, I have a lot of quibbles with Tolstoy, right? But in the end, I mean, you can't really argue with, I agree with you. Kutuzov was a great guy. <laughs> I thought he was awesome. Yeah, Kutuzov's wonderful. I hope he doesn't get a bad rap in the history books. I agree, Tolstoy. He shouldn't get a bad rap, you know? I thought it was really cool in this section how he quoted from Kutuzov's uh, missives for a while. Did you guys notice that? He finally, it finally introduces some evidence into his claim. 
He says, by the way, these are the things Kutuzov said about his campaigns. This is how I can prove what was going on in Kutuzov's head and, and heart at the time. That was pretty cool. I thought that was cool too, Ian. And I could see him as a novelist looking back at, at these three things in particular that Kutuzov famously said and building his whole articulation of the way that this went down off of Kutuzov's notes. He said, okay, there are three important chapters. The Battle of Borodino's a victory. We got to die on that hill. Uh, mo- the loss of Moscow is not the loss of Russia. We got to die on that hill. Everything gets done by itself better than we could wish. Hands off the wheel. It really is a, an outline for his, for the war portion. Yeah, it really is. Novel. That was cool. It made me feel like a good reader to have it said so succinctly in this passage, actually. It made me feel like, I think we got it. I think we understood that. You said it a lot of times before you said it clearly, and I quibble with that again, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It probably landed with some extra power, given that we've been talking about it for months. Well, you guys, thank you for your, for your thoughts. Do either of you have any, any final word to deliver on this passage? I don't think so. I, I can see that we're going to stick with Kutuzov, so we got we to gotta have good attitudes here, I think, g- moving forward. Well, Mar- <laughs> marshal your strength, my friends. As we dive into the next five chapters, uh, where hopefully the French army will finally leave Russia and we can get back (laughs) to picking up the pieces and finding out where our characters end up. Uh, Thank all you listeners for joining us. It is a pleasure to be with you on this trek through Russian history. And thank you, Leo Tolstoy, for giving us such a wonderful book to read. Until next time, my friends, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.